Okay. So. <clears throat> So what I wanted to talk about today is uh, the fifth jhana. <coughs> Actually, the Buddha never calls it the fifth jhana, to my knowledge. He calls them the first, second, third, fourth, and then he calls them the realm of this, the realm of that. And the fifth, the fifth jhana is the realm of infinite space. So I don't know how it is for you listening to listening, hearing about things that you may not have experienced yet. For some people it's interesting, for some people it's super exciting and they want to jump straight there. Um, for some people it's just, what's that got to do with me? And something turns off a little bit. For some people the inner critic kicks in, oh, I'm not there yet. Um, so it, it's always interesting, I've found over the years, um, talking about uh, about uh, or possibly talking about things and areas and experiences and openings and insights where it's often the case that many or some of the people I'm talking to are, are not there yet and how that lands and I've noticed over years going to be talking about something and one person is totally transfixed and bewitched and enchanted and another person sort of you know, looking at them you know, so um, so, but again, this is for uh, you, and it's for future use, of which there are actually an infinite amount for each of you, and it's for other beings elsewhere uh, now and um, in the future. So. Uh, the realm of infinite space. I don't know, how does that sound? <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> what's that? Cool, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear what's that? Big, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear what the not a place where you want to lose your keys. Um <laughs> there let's see what the Buddha has to say about that. Um, <coughs> so, uh, the practitioner is practicing and has reached a certain a certain place in in this very contrived uh, contrived exposition, contrived un it's a unfoldment. It's a, it's a, it's a the stage by stage is uh, a, a, a teaching contrivance. So he reaches, the, she, she, they reach a certain stage in, in, in their samadhi, and they're sitting there or standing there, walking, whatever, and, and the thought occurs to him. What if I, with the complete transcendence of perceptions of physical form, I'm going to come back to retranslate that because I don't like that. With the complete transcending of perceptions of physical form, with the disappearance of perceptions of resistance, and not heeding, not attending to perceptions of diversity, realizing space is infinite. 
What if I then were to enter and remain in the sphere of the infinitude of space? Without jumping at the sphere of the infinitude of space, he enters and remains in the sphere of infinitude and space. He sticks with it, that theme, develops it, pursues it, and establishes himself firmly in it. That's all the Buddha says about it. Actually, no, there's a bit more in, in other suttas. Suttas that, f- for some reason, are very rarely talked about, but I, I, I'm very fond of them. But that's one translation. I'm not particularly keen on a lot of that. This, The complete transcending of perceptions of physical form is translated by someone else here as by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations. I'm not entirely happy with that either. The, the Pali is rupasanyanam Samatikamma. And it means samatikamma is something like transcending, going beyond. Uh, Rupasanyanam is just rupa and sanya, both of which words you might know. Sanya is, is um, genitive plural of uh, sanya, which is perception. And rupa is rupa. But rupa is an interesting word because it can mean body. Um, and it can also mean form, as in a shape of something. I think the least misleading translation here would be something like with the complete transcending of perceptions of materiality. I think that would that would uh, pinpoint it more more easily. With the disappearance of perceptions of resistance. Uh, perceptions, so the, the floor is resistant to me and that's why I can stand on it. The wall is resistant to me and that's why I... I feel it when I look at the wall. I sense a, a sense of r- it will it will hurt if I run at it with my head first. Uh, there's a sense of it block something. Physical objects block something. Um, and not heeding to perceptions of diversity or manifoldness means not he- not paying attention to the many things that wake up, that make up the world of materiality. There's the clock, there's the lamp, there's the glass, there's the flowers, there's the shirt, there's the table, there's the person, there's the body, there's the cushion. Not heeding all these separate things, transcending the perception of materiality and uh, the quieting, the disappearance or the setting down is really the party, the putting down of the perception of resistance. It's another way of saying solidity. And then again, without jumping at it, without snatching at it, uh, enters and remains. But then again, this stick with it, develop it, pursue it, establish it. Um, so that's pretty much all the Buddha says about that. The, the descriptions get shorter and shorter and terser and terser. And we'll come back to another sutta where there's a bit more said about it. Um, but only in terms of how to get there. Um, and then often you get in these translations, though, not with the transcending of uh, perceptions of materiality, etc., um, thinking uh, space is infinite. Um, it's a strange Pali, it's a, it's a common but slightly unusual Pali construction. I'd prefer something to say like seeing or sensing or perceiving that space is infinite. And perceiving has both uh, a passive aspect or recognizing that space is infinite, but also perceiving, as we've highlighted so much on this retreat, has this kind of active aspect. I actually 
tune the perception, I play with perception so that the infinitude of space opens up. So the, for me, the word perceiving is a little better because it captures both that passive recognition and active active playing. I, I play with my perception so that infinitude, the sense of infinitude opens up. So the first four jhanas are called rupa jhanas and uh, the the last four jhanas are called a-rupa jhanas. A is a negative, so um, usually it's translated as the, the rupa jhanas and then the a-rupa jhanas are translated usually as the formless jhanas. Again, I, I I'm beginning to wonder whether a better translation would be the immaterial jhanas, the immaterial jhanas. And even as I said, the Buddha doesn't actually use the word jhanas, he uses the word ayatana, ayatana, um, which is a word in Pali that means something like sphere or realm or base. So I prefer realm, it's a world, it's a realm, it's a realm of existence, ayatana. So these jhanas five to eight are really opening up to other realms. And we had a, a glimpse, a taste of that, the beginnings of that in the third and fourth jhanas perhaps, but now we're really clearly in other realms. And this business of realms is quite important because it, it actually uh, relates. So these, these, this whole range of jhanic experiences map um, neatly and coherently onto a whole cosmology. So in Buddhist cosmology, there are three worlds. They talk about three worlds, tiloka in Pali, T3 loka world, tiloka. Three worlds or three realms or three, we could say, planes of existence or three levels of the cosmos. There is uh, what we might call the form realm, the, the, the realm of, of Rupa. Um, it's sometimes also in the Buddhist cosmology called the desire world, the world of desire, Kama Loka. And, uh, but I want to actually again point, it's the world of materiality. It's the world of the four elements, solidity, liquidity, uh, air, which really means m movement and heat heat and cold. So earth, air, fire, water. It's the world of materiality. So this is the world that we all agree on. We might slightly disagree or slightly be more or less informed about what the current thinking in physics is about the nature of the world, but it's the world we all experience, the world of materiality that everyone agrees on. Mm. This is one, it's the lowest level, it's the lowest, well actually it's not the lowest because there are, there are other realms, but it's, it's one level of um, it's a plane of existence, above which is a world that correlates with the first four jhanas, the rupa jhanas. And this is the world of subtle form. The world, so um, in, in, each, in each level of the cosmos, uh, see all, all this kind of gets ig ignored um, oftentimes in modern secular Buddha Dharma, of course, because it's just kind of, um, you know, superstitious, religious, mumbo-jumbo belonging to ancient Eastern thought. But actually, when you start to really go in and out of these jhanic perceptions and move, um, move between these different realms, really, you start to begin to, well, maybe there's something to this. So again, what looks like completely irrelevant, abstract, and pretty arbitrary metaphysics 
actually you see its direct correlation with meditative experience. Um, but this, the world of the four jhanas, is, or the plane of the four jhanas, the, the, that is, is uh, the world of subtle form, the rupa jhanas. Again, I would better say subtle materiality. And if we think about what's happening to the sense, the perception of the materiality of the body. Here I see it, normal consciousness, solid, solid bone, solid flesh, etc. Um, that's my body organs, all the rest of it. I, even in the first jhana, the, bo- the body becomes, um, in this cosmos, it's, it's much more subtle, it's more refined, the perception of the materiality of the body. It's subtle materiality. Okay? And, and we yesterday we were talking about the energy body as something that kind of spans physical and mental. Again, that we would put into the category of subtle materiality. That's what uh, this kind of cosmology and this kind of thinking also in relation to the energy body don't just exist in Buddhism. They also exist in, for instance, Islamic mysticism, probably some strands of Jewish Kabbalah, a uh, bit more complicated in, in uh, Christian mysticism, but maybe there. Um, energy body or subtle body belongs to that realm of um, that middle realm of subtle materiality. And then you get the immaterial realm. It's in Christianity and also in Islam and maybe in Judaism. There's also different levels of, of angels and also in Buddhism, different levels of devas and gods inhabit each realm. So usually translated as formless, but immaterial may, may be better. How do we get there? How, how does this open up? Well, probably... Probably, in most cases, it's going to be uh, it, it's going to first open up like in a in a you know convincing and uh, s- um, persuasive and uh, deeply impactful way from the fourth jhana, probably at first, and then the fourth jhana really uh, sense of it being really deep and really well established. And then one of the things you can do, once that fourth jhana is really established, then you can start almost feeling into the space of the energy body again with a view, with feeling for the sense of the body space. And what you sense there is a lack of solidity, a complete lack of solidity, as if it's just empty space. And actually, that goes with a subtle well-being. So you could either tune into the, here I am in the fourth jhana, it's not piti, it's not sukha, um, it's something much more subtle, but there is a well-being there, despite this neither pleasure nor pain language, there is a well-being, but it's the well-being, that kind of well-being is the well-being of, of non-solidity, of non-materiality. It's almost like you feel as if you could just put your hand right through this space here. That feeling right there in this location, in the energy body space, in the energy body region, the kinesthetic sense of that, of that lack of solidity and that the well-being that goes with the absence of solidity and materiality is very refined. Again, if we think about the five jhanas, you've got or five jhanas plus normal consciousness. Normal consciousness, it's just solid. It's not very refined at all. 
first jhana more refined, second jhana more refined. We've said this before, third, fourth. By the time you get to the fifth, fourth is very refined. By the time you get to the fifth, it's refined out all, all of any sense of solidity. There's not even a sense of a, a kind of um, energetic substance or, or th- you know, the stillness or whatever. It's, it's kind of gone. Do you understand? It's just, a, it's just an extension of the same thing, the energy body sense of refinement. So to really sense that, to really feel into it, inhabit it, and stay with that, stay with that very sense of the well-being that comes from the absence of solidity, and really focus on that. This is one, one approach. And one might notice, actually there's no edges. This, this, this very uh, absence of solidity has no edges. It's edgeless. Or one might notice that any edges that maybe habitually creep in, uh, the assumption or even an imagination of edges that might creep in subtly into the mind, they just keep dissolving. The mind just sees through them. So they just become space. In the Visuddhimagga, which is this commentary uh, that I mentioned a couple of times from Sri Lanka, there's a technique where you use little discs, they're called kasinas, and you focus on them. They can be different colors, and that's one of the sort of meditative techniques that's um, explained a lot and emphasized a lot in the Visuddhimagga. And then from that little technique, then you, you deliberately try imagining a bigger and bigger disc until it's infinite. Um, but this way of doing it that I've talked about, I don't think you need to stretch anything. Just this this absence that you're feeling, the kinesthetic sense of absence, you don't need to stretch anything, you don't need to push anything outwards or, s- or, or um, make an effort, kind of stretching space to infinity. Um, just hanging out there, it, it, it after a while it will just, you just realize it just goes on forever. There's no end to this. And if there are, as I said, if there are edges, they just keep dissolving. They just you just keep kind of seeing through them. So for many people, they have an internal visual imagination, and there's literally the seeing of space. Um, but and that and that can be really helpful, really really helpful. There's a, there's a seeing of 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 this kind of infinitude of space. But we really also want to get a kind of kinesthetic sense involved as well. So it can feel as if as if one would just was falling through space. I'm just I think it came up partly in the Q and A really early in the retreat. Can feel like they've just taken the floor away and it's as if there's just nothing underneath me at all and nothing above and um, so the visual and kinesthetic sense can very much work together and and that will really help kind of uh, empower the whole thing and consolidate it and there is a delight in this Uh, there is something actually to enjoy so technically you're supposed to be beyond pleasure and pain and all that but actually there's I think a a great delight in this very um, absence of resistance that the Buddha is talking about the very sense of just uh, infinite of just falling through space or potentially being able to fall through space nothing there nothing at all in the way nothing at all that one could uh, bang into or that would obstruct in any way so that enjoying is actually quite uh, an important element. We'll come back to that. Um, but really what one, one's doing is really staying focused on the space, on the total absence of solidity, 
on the uh, of solidity or resistance and and not really attending to anything anything else that comes up in the mind or anything else that one might perceive that's the non attending to perceptions of diversity and and that's you keep doing that and the thing starts to get bigger but also really really uh consolidated so sometimes people want to worry about well is it is it how how big is it? I've got a sense of space. It's definitely not solid, but how big is it? Is it infinite yet? I don't think um, I don't think we need to worry about that. It's the same thing. I don't need to worry about pushing it, or uh, it's more just one sense that there aren't edges. So the Pali word in the suttas is ananta, which literally means without end or without without a boundary, without edge. It's that absence of boundaries, and one just keeps any sense of wherever they could be is they just they just disappear and just kind of the mind falls through them they just disappear and then then the sense just opens out opens out um keeping with the sense of space allows the expansion sometimes we mentioned already there's a kind of level of the fourth jhana which we could say is a slightly deeper level like the third jhana where it opens up wider but we want in the third and fourth jhanas we want to keep the attention more in the in the energy body space but there's a sense of a wider realm so it could go from there one starts giving one's attention to the wider the the wider realm rather than just keeping the energy with the energy body but essentially it's the same thing and you'll have to see what works better um for you so as usual dam dam bursts at first perhaps and and it just goes there effortless etc but it might be in time and with eno- enough experience in and out in and out the one time one's practicing this and body sensations start to come back or even physical pain starts to come back so either one then needs to um go back to a lower jhana probably the fourth jhana or if you have more experience you could go to a higher jhana actually so let's say you already know the 6th or the 7th and here i am trying to get into the 5th in this session but it's keeps something in the body keeps returning could go back to the 4th or could go to the 6th or 7th if i know them and then come back and and those those visitations will really help uh, everything to become less solid again and then one can stay more in in the 5th jhana or another option might be that one could uh here I am pain is starting to reemerge in the body or or just body sensations and one can almost focus in between the regions of pain just look at the gaps the space in between um and eventually those will open up and the space will reestablish itself but really i think th- the best foundation is probably a really strong sense of stillness from the fourth jhana really refined and uh, pristine pure sense of stillness from the fourth jhana uh and then if one as i said if one if one attempts the fifth jhana then and it's not steady one can always return to the fourth jhana so you can make it kind of a home base f- in many different ways but for is tricky you know like i said a lot of what i say will have uh exceptions but generally speaking that the fourth jhana wants to be really quite mature before before the fifth can be really established sometimes there are suttas i couldn't find them but there are suttas where where the buddha talks about 
if I remember. It's it's almost like, okay, there are four jhanas, and then there are four immaterial realms, and what they really are are perspectives on the fourth jhana. They're ways of looking at what's happening in the fourth jhana, particularly ways of looking at what's happening uh, to the sense of the body. So that the immaterial realms are different ways of sensing or different ways of looking at the body sense in the fourth jhana. So, in a way, infinite space is, as a realm is already there in the fourth jhana. If I look at the fourth jhana, if I look at the sense of the body in a certain way, and I just see it as space, it's already there. There's already so little solidity. And I just look at it and sense the body as space. Or, and, it, and this one matches more of the Buddha's descriptions, if I sense the body space, uh, what did the Buddha say about the fourth jhana? The analogy was um, a purified, uh, bright awareness. A purified mindfulness. That's what was pervading. It wasn't piti, it wasn't sukha. It was a purified, bright awareness that was pervading the body. So that one's already hinting at the beginnings of the sixth jhana. I look at the body and I see it as awareness. What I'm paying attention to is the very awareness there. And that will take me to the sixth jhana, etc. Or nothing or whatever. For most people, I think, I've never done a statistical analysis, but I think for most people, this the, the, this jhana is perceived as pitch black. So you could have a very luminous, white, white, bright white fourth jhana. But for most people, I think uh, the fifth jhana will be black. But it doesn't it doesn't really matter. That's a, a very secondary thing. I think one of the lovely things about uh, this this realm is that you can actually practice it with the eyes open, um, and this is something I would really really recommend. Uh, in addition to the usual eyes shut ways of working, uh, sitting, standing, looking at the sky, for instance, looking at space, getting a sense of the space, feeling that space, the space of the sky. Um, uh, the space there in nature, feeling it with the body, feeling it kinesthetically as well. And again, realizing it's boundless, it's ananta, it doesn't have boundaries. So I, I, when I was learning this, it was uh, we had a heat wave, and I think it was um, really, I mean really hot from something like March until uh, October or something, and I was on retreat the whole time. And I would just stand um, in in the fields and and you know the less busy lanes and just be staring at the sky, much to the um, amusement probably of the ne- neighbors and things. <laughs> but but it's one way of practicing, and it's very 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 potent, very be- just as potent. Eyes open, looking looking, and getting a real feel for for the space, the body and the mind become kind of one with boundless space. That's what we're, we're trying to, again, dissolve the body and dissolve the mind in this boundless space. And it's a very um, exhilarate. Exhilaration is, is, is perhaps a really accurate word. There's really a sense of wow. It's almost uh, dr- dramatic in, in that dissolution, in that infinitude, in that disappearance of, of body and solidity. 
we're mo- again moving in that direction. It's the same thing with sassy. It's the A. Absorb is a direction. Dissolving body and mind, absorbing into it, being space. I used to say to myself, "Being space, I I've become space." It's a, but it's a direction. However absorbed we are, we can always be more absorbed. So, with the this kind of opening, there's um, or there should be um, a very strong sense of cosmic oneness mystical cosmic oneness that emerges with this, uh, with the opening to this realm. Um, both in the jhana, certainly, because one, one has become space, there's nothing but space. The whole cosmos is just space. And also in the after effects of, on perception. As I mentioned yesterday, these, to me, the after effects on perception become really important at this level, the formless jhanas are really powerful, Poten- they, they, they're potentially very potent. Um, so there's a strong sense of cosmic oneness, and again, that does something to the, to the heart, to the soul, to the sense of existence, to uh, all of that. I'll return to that later, come back to the oneness bit uh, later. There's also, in this state, um, there's also what the Buddha calls uh, a sense of release. I meant to look up the Pali, I can't can't remember, but um, the Buddha talks about a release. Now, all jhanas are releases. Uh, They're releases from the hindrances. Certainly the first four jhanas are releases from sense desires and the irritations or aversions to sensual uh, impacts. But here we have a different kind of release. We're released from the perceptions of materiality and solidity. And that really is felt as a release. That release, that sense of release, is what I would call a secondary nimitta. The primary nimitta here is space and its endlessness. Space, just just nothing solid there. Just nothing, nothing, nothing solid there. That's the primary nimitta. A secondary nimitta, which again, like we've talked about before with the love or other secondary nimitta, you can uh, lean into and emphasize and explore more at times. Um, but it, it probably overall, if you, want the whole, if you want the whole journey to deepen, it needs to remain secondary. But it's still really important to sense the, r- the release here. Uh, uh, and, and that's what I would call a secondary nimitta. It's a tremendous release to be released. This is one of those things. When stop a person on the street and ask them if they feel imprisoned by materiality and solidity. <laughs> and it's like, you need to get out more, or whatever they would say. But, um, yeah, the, um, the, there, there are releases that we don't realize are releases until we, uh, oh sorry, there are imprisonments that we don't realize are imprisonments until we've gone beyond them. That's why, I prefer to keep the word dukkha in the Pali because it's talking about subtle things that we have n- no, uh, no, gra- no sense of them as dukkha at all. We wouldn't list them on our, sense of, on our list of what's dukkha. But the release from perceptions of materiality and solidity really is a, uh, there's a freedom there. So, say, so that's also secondary nimitta, well they're completely connected, release, freedom secondary nimitta, very uh, exhilarating. There's joy as well, perhaps, as a secondary nimitta at times. 
and I would say wonder and awe. But these are all uh, secondary. And the sense of infinity itself, you know, is going to affect, uh, or again, it can if we let it, if we don't get in the way, if we're not uh, entrenched in certain views which uh, erect walls of conception and view that are not um, demolishable. If we actually let it, then the sense of infinity and, and, and this sense of uh, release from materiality and this whole perception, the cosmic oneness, they really affect the being deep deeply, affect the sense of existence, the whole relationship with um, death, uh, the self and the self's dying, this taste of infinity, this uh, it's more than a taste, this immersion in, this dissolution in infinity. And like I said, all the, all the jhanas really have their impact, um, or s part of their impact, a strand of their impact, is in, is in lessening attachment. So here as well. Another secondary limiter will be love, me metta, let's say metta is m more accurately, metta. Why? All this oneness and non-heeding to perceptions of diversity, metta is unconditional love. The more oneness, the more natural there is, uh, naturally there is the metta. And when I'm not heeding diversity and not attending to perceptions of diversity, then everything is, e e everyone is equally uh, deserving of metta. And the metta flows to all equally. It's when I prefer this bit of diversity to that bit of diversity. That's when uh, the metta becomes, un uh, becomes conditional and not so, not so uh, pure. So metta is there uh, as a secondary limiter. Again, something we can certainly lean into at times or in the after effects on perception. It might be in those after effects, you might have a lot of different after effects. So that might be a very strong one. Just walking around after this kind of experience and there's a tremendous metta and one may really lean into that. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so much concentrating on the space sense or the infinity. It's just the metta now that... Uh, profound sort of um, ocean of it. Um, just a small point here that may not be needed anymore, but I remember years ago it was commonly taught that um, Metta and Karuna and the bra uh, Metta and Karuna Mudita, uh, loving kindness, compassion and uh, appreciative joy, uh, were good objects for jhana practice, but they only went as far as the third jhana. That's as far as you could take them. Has anyone heard that? Yeah, it's from the Visuddhimagga. The Buddha never said that. In the, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha says, um, metta can take you to the fourth uh, and fifth jhanas. It's the fourth and fifth jhanas, um, etc. And he goes uh, more. So I don't know, again, it's a strange historical thing that has happened with the Vasudhimaga and it gets kind of a lot of stuff in there gets unquestioned for some reason even though the Buddha is saying something quite different. But a little bit relating to what Derek asked yesterday, he says um, Metta uh, uh, delivers or Karuna delivers to let's say the fifth jhana and uh, or uh, let's say Karuna delivers to the fifth jhana and he says but for one who has not penetrated to further release in other words 
if you know the sixth or seventh, you can your karuna, your compassion practice could could take you to the sixth. There's a couple of interesting things here uh, to point out. First is it just a small point in terms of karuna that um, if karuna is taking you to the second or the third jhana, karuna means compassion, right? That's your meditation. That means that it needs to be. That means compassion is a happy state, right? So sometimes people get have an idea that compassion is not a happy state, but actually it's very clear what the Buddha meant by compassion is a happy state, is a state where there's a lot of happiness in it. That's that's a small point. The other thing, and I throw this out for for you to explore or whoever to explore in your in when you want, is that at some point with all this, if you really get into it, you can start experimenting with different kind of cocktails, what I call cocktails. It means exactly this. Um, For instance, mixing um, infinite consciousness, the sixth jhana, the realm of infinite consciousness, with, um, with, let's say, compassion. And so you've got you're starting to color space or put two things together that are ordinarily not thought of together and you've got like like mixing cocktails. Um, So, you know, what you read um, or what you might hear uh, in terms of the categories and this does this and this does this, you start to feel like, you start to get the sense that actually a lot more is possible than, than you may have read about and all kinds of creativity and playfulness are possible. So you can make your own cocktails and give them funny names. So, the after effects on perception. Um, I think, again, I, this is so, so important, I think, and so uh, so much what touches the heart and makes the difference in one's life, brings the liberation, brings the wonder, and brings this, the, 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 the change and the opening out of the sense of existence. It's this almost as much as what happens in the meditation. So from this, from the, there's kind of two we could pinpoint from, from the realm of infinite space, two after effects. One is that all is space. So you may, where's my apple gone? <laughs> See what she likes? She gives the teacher an apple and she takes it. <laughs> anyway, all right, we'll have to, yeah. Um, all right, this, not as good as an apple, but this is the, this is the, <laughs> This is the, you've probably all heard this before, this is the nucleus of an atom. Where are the electrons? Yeah, how far? Plymouth? Any, any advance on Plymouth? <laughs> Johannesburg. Yeah. So, um <laughs> something like that. Anyway, the point is, we feel ourselves to live in a world that's uh, very, very solid. What's the world made up of? It's made up of atoms. An atom has a nucleus and is orbited by electrons in the classical view that's then completely trashed by quantum physics. But anyway, um, and the distance between the nucleus and the electrons is something like, actually, if it's that size, because it's usually an orange, that's why I wanted the apple. So with that size, it would, be, it would actually be somewhere like the moon or somewhere like that. Um, so basically the, the, the idea is like most of what we're looking at and feeling and sensing as solid space is actually space. So that's one, that's one after effect. The 
more significant one, I think the one the Buddha puts more influence on. That's still important, that space thing. It's, it's, a, it's an important perception. Um, but the second one is that, and this is, has to do with oneness, it's that all sense objects are really one materiality. They're one stuff, one substance. So we, we are star stuff. So everything in this room, everyone in this room, all the atoms that make up everyone and everything in this room, probably all came from the same supernova. Supernova is when a star explodes. And the uh, physical and chemical processes that happen when a star explodes, it generates um, more complex atoms, which can then make, make carbon and make other elements that form the world of materiality. So all of us and everything on Earth would probably came, all the atoms came from the same supernova that exploded somewhere or other a long time ago. So in a way, we're all one materiality. And then before that, it all came from the Big Bang, allegedly. So we can hear that kind of stuff, but with this, with this with this kind of perception, the, that the perception of oneness, oneness of materiality, oneness of physical substance, becomes Im- impresses itself on the heart. Like it's not just a, oh, that's not interesting. It really impresses itself on the heart. It's a level of oneness that really um, starts to touch one's being. It's a mystical oneness, really. Even though we're talking about matter, where we have that sense of the mystical not just connection, but oneness with all materiality, the, the whole uh, earth, the, uh, each other, bodies, trees, everything. Now, there are, uh, I don't know how many suttas that's, uh, that mention uh, the realm of infinite space. Most of them just say just that little bit, what, the bu- what I read to you at the beginning that the Buddha said, which is really two or three lines. There's another one which I was a Sutta, which was I was a big big fan of this sutta for a while when I was exploring um, the relationship of insight and jhana practice, and it's a it's a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, and it's called something like ways to the imperturbable or conducive to the imperturbable, um, an injasapaya sutta. Um, so again, we go back to what we talked about yesterday: insight ways of looking that open up a particular jhana. So here, it's not so much that the insight way of looking that one employs or engages or practices is space is infinite. It's rather that uh, what the Buddha teaches, that all sensuality and all sense perceptions are, uh, he he gives three options, but it's really the third one that we're interested in. He says, they're all dukkha. All sensuality and all sense perceptions are dukkha. Then second one, he gives all sensuality, all sense perceptions are impermanent. So these are, again, they're not just like, oh yeah, that's right, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be attached, like an idea, and then we say, yeah, yeah, it's bad to be attached. They're views, they're insight ways of looking. So I have to translate that agilely, subtly, into my way of looking in the moment and keep looking over and over, keep sensing over and over. This is what we mean by an insight way of looking. Not if the Buddha says all all sense objects are impermanent. It's like yeah, okay, that tells me I should live and try and not be attached. It's going to have about zero power in our life. 
But if we engage it as a way of looking, I mean a m- subtle meditative engagement, this is what I mean by insight way of looking, is something very light in, in the consciousness as we're looking, we're looking in a particular way, we're sensing, we're relating in a particular way, seeing, sensing in a particular way, impermanent, all these things are dukkha, all of it, whatever I see, I, I walk around, I sit, I look at the materiality, I sense the materiality, impermanent dukkha. Then it starts to do something. And it's not that it starts to do something 20 years later, maybe I'll be a little less attached. I mean, it may well have that effect too, but it does something now. And this again is what what I mean by insight ways of looking. They have their power now. They bring release now. They change the perception now. If I just need to do it over and over and over, I'm training, I'm training, I'm playing with perception over and over. But the most significant one here of the three that the Buddha gives is not the dukkha, not the impermanence, but the it's all materiality. It's all just the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. So again, what does that mean? It means perhaps I do my walking meditation or I stand outside or I sit with my eyes open, with my eyes closed, and any sense of any sense object, I'm looking, it's just materiality, it's just materiality. This has to mean something to me. It has to mean, so if it doesn't mean it, mean something, then it won't work. So it has to both mean something, but also in the looking be incredibly light and incredibly agile. I can't have a big philosophical essay that I'm kind of pondering through and repeating, but pregnant in my just impermanent, impermanent, or it's just materiality, it's just materiality. There has to, that one's quite an easy one, I think, but it has to, encapsulate uh, something that means something for me about its material. Do you understand? Yeah. Then it has its power. Then it starts to have its power and I need to sustain it. Moment after moment I sustain it. It's a way of looking, an insight way of looking. And that insight way of looking can take me to the the fifth jhana, the, the realm of infinite space. Why? Yeah, so Nicole said, you're not attending to diversity. Yeah, that's one reason. And you're also not, um, it's all just, um, there's, there's a, especially with the impermanent and dukkha, there's also a sense that I'm not interested in this. It's just mat- all materiality, all sense objects, all, uh, uh, sense perceptions are, are kind of not, not, I'm just not interested. So there's, there's a, a letting go of any clinging with regard to materiality and, ob- and material objects. So both for the reason Nicole said, not attending to diversity, but also this kind of, we'll come back to this, basically the Buddha says, this is worthless, this is dukkha, this is Mara's snare, this is a cancer, this is a, a dart, an arrow. So all that's kind of in there. It doesn't need to be so, the Buddha's a little extreme sometimes in his language. It d- it's more just a kind of like, hmm, hmm, nah, nah, nah. But very, very subtle, and then we're do- doing something very, very powerful, and and this other realm can begin to open up from the insight way of looking. I haven't gone through jhanas one, two, three, four. I've gone through the insight way of looking. Um, there, there will be in that, and, and in all this, in both in the, in the sense of oneness that comes in the after effect on perception, also if you follow that insight way of looking that I just described, um, and the Buddha offered there, 
there will be in time this this disident certainly in the moment but also uh, more long term in my life more disidentification with the body becomes available and again i would say it becomes available rather than just a constant thing because sometimes it's important to identify with the body of course it's important um but that view, that relationship with the body of non-identification becomes much more available through the insight way of looking or through the after effect of on perception from, from the, uh, the jhanic realm. There's just elements of the cosmos, uh, just, just the material elements of the cosmos. And when we're eating, we're just moving elements from there to here and then out again, or breathing or whatever. And again, there's a, there's a release, there's a beauty in that. If I only ever think of body and physicality like that, to me that's an impoverishment. I miss all kinds of wonderful, beautiful, important things about existence. Do, do you understand? That, I think that's really important. So that's one way it can happen. But um, the, other th the other way is... Um, not with the eyes shut and uh, nor with the eyes open looking at the sky or looking at space but actually looking at objects and particularly if you've had if you've been if you had a lot of experience going in and out of of the realm of infinite space but also maybe from other meditative experiences which many of you have already actually already had where you look at an object and usually, as I said, I, I look at the wall or I look at Nathan or, or whatever it is, and, and in the looking, there's a sense of their solidity. I just somehow sense it as, as a part of the normal consciousness. Again, I, I know it's, you know, I'm, it's gonna, there's going to be resistance and there's going to be uh, obstruction there. But sometimes, especially if you've done a lot of fifth jhana, or other kinds of meditation, there's this other perception available where you look at something and and you can kind of see right through it, so to speak. It just doesn't appear solid. So you can also train your perception, play with a way of looking where you're seeing and sensing things as space, not as solid. So just look at the table and just get a sense of it not as solid M one's ability to do that is is uh, rests on how many probably how familiar you are with that kind of perception from before and as a it could come from your previous experience of the realm of infant space but it could also come from other other kinds of meditative opening because that at decrease of solidity is again it's a kind of unfabricating and any meditative practice uh, certainly any kind of classical meditative practice is a practice of unfabricating to some degree dana sila ethics uh, concentration samadhi jhana insight practice they're all unfabricating to some degree so that this kind of perception, if you're practicing many different, any different kinds of meditation, it's very common to have that experience. And so it might be that resting on one's previous experiences of a sense of, of kind of the non-solidity of things 
when one looks at them. You can actually engage that more deliberately rather than just waiting for it to come as a result. Engage it more deliberately and then then the realm of infinite space begins to open up with your eyes open. You don't need a big space, don't need the eyes shut. It's more just a way of seeing, a way of sensing what's there that we usually perceive in a certain way. I'm just perceiving it in a different way. Does this make sense? So, <coughs> yeah, I think, as we said at the start, um, most of you guys are pretty interested in this, but if, if my, you know, why am I, why am I doing Dharma practice? Why am I meditating? And if people have a lot of different reasons why they're meditating, they're looking for a lot of different things. There's such a huge variety um, in terms of what brings people to practice meditation these days. It's, in, it's enormous. And even within Buddha Dharma, and even people who come on retreats, and maybe I would say even people, really hardcore practitioners, still have a lot of, a lot of um, uh, range of what they're, what they're wanting. So if what I want is, um, in my life, I want simplicity and equanimity. And equanimity in the sense of with regard to the eight worldly conditions, praise, blame, pain, pleasure, success, failure, gain, loss. And that's kind of why I'm practicing. I have a vision of uh, that the Dharma and meditation can make my life more simple. And that attracts me. And I want this kind of evenness of equanimity. If that's kind of the goal of practice, or those are the goals of practice, I'm not sure whether there's that much point or need to open up to these kinds of realms, really. Um, maybe, you know, attention to impermanence, realizing the impermanence of things um, would help. But I don't know that this is really necessary. If, um, turning that around, if if uh, if my vision of awakening, my idea of what an awakened person knows is that they know the impermanence of all things, I'm also not so sure that one needs to open up to the realm of infinite space. Um, there or, or the other formless, the other immaterial realms. They you don't really need that. So, I would like to, having said that, just revisit again this question of desire, which we talked about, uh, which I talked about at some point earlier on the retreat. And one of the points I made, and uh, trying to convey its significance because it wasn't obvious, is it's not just. Um, I think I think I said something like, um, <coughs> "What I desire, exactly what I desire." exactly what I'm looking for has more, uh, is more significant than whether I reach a certain jhana. How I relate to my desire and what exactly my desire is is more significant than whether I reach jhana. As a teaching, that very nugget there, the, the how much, what, I'll say it better, how much what unfolds depends on both exactly what I'm desiring and how I'm relating to my desire. That, as a teaching, I would say is more significant than any tip or technique or 
tell you how to move from this jhana to the other. And I think I asked how many people believe me, and some of you put your hands up and some of you didn't. Um, <coughs> and then we talked. I talked a bit about desire. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that the piece I wanted to emphasize was not so much... Uh, how much desire we have. Because sometimes, and I know, sometimes I can talk and it, it might sound to some people like, oh, there's so much desire, I don't have enough desire, I don't... Rob has all this hot-blooded Mediterranean Arabic passion and whatever, and I'm not like that. So I wasn't really, it wasn't really about how much, it was about how we relate to our desire and what exactly we are desiring. And that an enormous amount hinges on that. An enormous amount of what will unfold for us as practitioners hinges on that. And, and knowing that and understanding that may be more important than how to get from one jhana to another, and it may be more important than attaining whatever jhana. So again, what what are we really desiring? What is w w again? There's such a huge range in the Dharma. You know, many people these days with the sort of uh, meditation in mainstream culture come to the Dharma for for some ease, you know, understandably enough, for some reduction of suffering. They're you know um, oppressed and badgered by their inner critic, and they want they want that to they want a certain amount of freedom with relation to the inner critic, uh, the self judge, or whatever you call it. They want some ease in their life, and and I want some reduction of suffering. And what might happen is. Um, a person might get that. They might get some ease uh, over time, uh, over through practice. Um, some ease, some reduction of suffering, some abating of the inner critic. Maybe it comes from a certain amount of Dharma practice. Maybe it comes, that ease, that reduction of suffering and that reduction of the inner critic, as much from a change in the outer circumstances. Shift at work, now I'm in a relationship, uh, or now I'm out of a certain relationship, or um, uh, life conditions change, and I actually feel, I actually feel better. Um, so I've got what I wanted originally. I've got that that degree of ease, or that um, that reduction of suffering that I wanted. Um, and then maybe at that point, there's n I don't really want anything more. Why am, why am I even practicing anymore? I've kind of got what I wanted. You know, how much is jhanas and, and these immaterial realms, it's like, um, how much would such a person even want or need to, uh, to come, come on a retreat like this or give much time to all this? What Exactly what we want determines what's what unfolds, determines how we relate to uh, practice and dharma and all that. So someone was telling me a while ago, they were talking about going on another jhana retreat. Uh, well, for them it would have been the first jhana retreat and explaining why they wanted to go. And they said they thought that the jhanas would um, uh, enable them to be more present. And they had been practicing meditation for probably 25 or 30 years. And that was how they viewed the whole of practice. It was really about being more present. Can I be more present to life? And, um, and they practiced diligently, very, very committed, but that was their view. It's about, it's about being present. 
wrapped up in that, it's about being present, actually as a whole cosmology. Do you understand that? Why would being present, in other words, being present is, is gives a kind of sanctity to something, to what? To the present moment, to this world as I perceive it. It's got a whole hidden metaphysics, and I've talked about this elsewhere, I'm not going to go into it now. It's got a whole hidden metaphysics and cosmology on which this idea and this kind of raising up of this aspiration over and over to be present, to be present to life, to be present to the way things are, to be present to the moment. All, the, all these charged words, life, the moment, things as they are, they all pick, pick at, or rather, scratch away at the charge and they all hide certain world worldviews. They're all pregnant with certain worldviews. Does this make sense? I again, uh, such a person I don't think would need to come, first of all the jhanas are not going to make you that much more present. You can, I don't know, you don't need the jhanas to be, to practice presence. So that maybe a person would have gone on, that person would have gone on, on a jhana retreat and actually um, found only a marginal, uh, a marginal increase, if, if at all, in their ability to be present. But would have also realized that you don't, you don't need that. I think more would, would at some point decide that they weren't, it wasn't really their cup of tea. They weren't really interested in that. Uh, it would be hard for them to sustain an interest in jhana practice. When we talk about other realms, or mastery, or this st mystical state, or that mystical state, but the, the whole elevation of the idea of presence, has can those things have nothing to do with that. Presence has nothing to do with other realms, or opening to other realms. Do you, do you see what I'm trying? So that such a person, had they gone on that jhana retreat, probably would have decided, w wouldn't have been able to sustain the intention. If it was a long retreat like this one, they wouldn't have been able to sustain the intention. They wouldn't have kept working and playing. Because it actually wasn't what they wanted. They wanted something else and, and wrapped up in uh, that other thing of wanting more presence, wrapped up in all, all that other thing of wanting more presence, was resting on a whole cosmology which wasn't uh, it was kind of kind of entrenched, and there was no real interest in shifting um, the cosmology. Or, or sometimes it's more uh, it's obvious in other ways. A person doesn't want to is a kind of negative desire. Um, I, I my desire is not to budge um, a certain cosmology. So I, I also run into people talking about jhana practice and retreat jhana retreats they've been on where there's um, you know, they've said, I think I mentioned this before, the person's come after a jhana retreat and said, oh, it was really fun, I had a great time, whatever. But there was, a, there was a kind of... Uh, walled entrenchment in a certain cosmological view, in a certain view of the world, of human being, uh, of the cosmos, of what awakening is, of being itself. And the absolute priority was that that view did not get challenged, that it remained what it was. It was so much invested in that view, um, that the world is like it is, and existentially we have to face up to that. 
a, a, a purposeless world of cold, uh, uh, purposely dancing atoms in which a human being inexplicably finds himself, finite life, uh, death, and, and the whole point of Dharma practice is to realize that, face up to it, and be relatively okay with that existential truth. And that's the point of Dharma practice. So you can do a little bit of jhanas, but not too much. You can have a little bit of fun. And even, even the language, oh, I had a great time. It's almost like I had a great time. It was like a little hobby at the side, kind of something that was kind of cute to play with for a little bit. But I don't want to do too much because then if I have enough of these kinds of experiences, then it might start challenging my view of the cosmos, my view of what human being is, my view of existence, of what the world is, of what reality is. So there's a kind of negative desire, if you like, operating, a desire for something not to be uh, pushed on and challenged. Don't want um, that that person will limit uh, the exploration of jhanas and ways of looking that we talked about yesterday, um, so that they don't, uh, they're not allowed to open up kind of drastic and uh, radical, repeatedly open up drastic and radical changes in the sense of things and existence. Limited exploration uh, limits the challenge. So you can zip through jhanas from one to eight, but it doesn't really make any difference to the whole sense of existence. It's just a, a fun game that one's playing, maybe pleasant, pleasant in the mind. Or again, it might be uh, someone wants a kind of equanimity in daily life, and that's that's what they want. We've already said this, you know. Then again, it will be limited. The, the interest in this kind of thing will actually be limited. A little bit of impermanence, maybe a little bit of the vastness of awareness, because you get quite a equanimity there. Maybe a little anatta at a certain level. But those, those also those practices will be re related to as a decrease of papancha, we've talked about this, as a decrease of reactivity, as a decrease of fussing. And that's the point of Dharma practice. Decrease of papancha and fuss. So I just want to speak a little bit more about desire. Um, I do think it's kind of, yesterday we spoke about emptiness and talking about awakening and we're speaking about jhanas and I still think more fundamental and more fundamentally important than emptiness, than jhanas, and then awakening is the question of desire and how we're relating to it. I'd, I'd say it's more fundamental than all of that. Um, so I, yeah, when, I, when, I, when I talked about it the other time, I'd, I, um, you know, what I, what I perhaps should have said, and if it was a little out of balance, is People, people are different with desire. In, in other words, people, people are uh, unique a little bit with their desire. Everyone, um, it's not everyone burns with a certain kind of passionate desire. Some people do and some people don't. Some people, their desire burns differently. So whatever I said, whenever it was, um, I, I didn't mean to sound, and I'm sorry if it did sound, as if I was kind of implying you should all burn this way or like this, or with this kind of intensity. Um, I think the more important question is, what is authentic for you? What's authentic for you? Like your desire and how that burns. 
So some people, um, you know, and I was giving some stories from my past and how the pain of desire and of staying with something and the sort of torment and the and all that and and the rub of it and, and all that. But some people n- uh, much more naturally don't have. Um, uh, they don't. It doesn't burn that way. It doesn't burn with a great, huge, passionate flame of intensity that's problematic. Their eros, their desire, or or it burns with either they just don't have so much. It's just what's authentic to them is not so much desire, and this has to be respected. That's what the point I'm trying to make. One of the points I'm trying to make, or it burns in a kind of much easier, less intense way than something like I might somehow communicate when I share about myself. Um, less pressured way. So this is this I think is is really important. So some people it does burn with a lot of pressure, with a lot of intensity. Sometimes the pressure and intensity is not authentic. It's something added on by the inner critic, or by peer peer pressure, or something like that. Sometimes a person's desire is not so flaming, burning, and and passionate like that. And sometimes that's authentic. But sometimes not being so burning intensely is is not authentic. In other words, there's actually something going on that a person is dampening their desire without even realizing it, inhibiting it, blocking it, avoiding it, fearing it, dissipating it, forgetting it. So the question here, one of the important questions is about authenticity for each soul in relationship to desire. I think partly after after the other talk on desires, I felt I felt like I didn't make that clear enough. So that's partly why I'm saying this now. Y- you know, a, I think I said that a talk is a talk. So when I give a talk in public, as many people, and it's being recorded, I speak in certain ways. But but it should be. I hope you feel that if you come to an interview with me, I I need to match you where you are and not impose anything about you need to be desiring this or you need to have more desire or whatever it is. Um, I, I, my desire for a, for a one-to-one interview is to meet you where you are with that. And to really respect, genuinely respect, if your desire burns differently than mine or th- than the next person. And it would be kind of a bit obnoxious if I didn't, I think. But talking with a group is a different thing, and talking when there's recordings, and we don't know who's going to listen to this in however many years. It's a different thing. Anyway, I didn't make that clear enough. So I need to respect how your desire burns, and how much desire there is, if that's authentic. And I may also respect, even if we're working one-on-one, I may also respect, um, even if your desire is different than mine, and why should it be the same? I need also to respect your process and where you are in your process of uncovering your, let's call it, natural and authentic flame and desire. Or where you are in liberating it and uh, knowing its power. And that takes time. And that's at a certain place, that process, at any time. So if I'm working one-to-one with someone, that's also part of what I need to do. So I'm not going to, even if some, some sense, actually this person has a lot more desire and they're not really, um, they're for whatever reason, not really in touch with it or not really allowing it, I still need to respect the process there and not push that um, impatiently or out of time. 
So there's a lot of different um, elements to consider here, I think, when we talk, certainly when we talk one-on-one, then again when we're talking in a, in a, in a larger context. So authenticity, what w- authenticity in two respects. There's authenticity about what I desire. Which Monica asked this question. You know, what's the difference? Again, with through introspection, can I slowly learn to, to feel the difference between a desire that's coming, let's say, more from what we might call ego and a desire from what we might more call soul? And that's why we give uh, partly all the soul-making teachings point to um, the difference, all those elements of the imaginal, etc. They point to them, all this talk about eros, points to what can I discern the difference when uh, a desire of mine is actually not authentic? And I might have been pursuing something for ages before maybe someone points out or maybe I realize, actually, this isn't what I really, really want. It's not what I really, really care about. So yes, as I said the other day when we were talking about, we get inundated with advertising and all that. But what about things like, how many people have been engaging emptiness practices diligently, diligently, and yet emptiness and that realization is actually not what they really, really want? How did that happen? I think, I think emptiness, again, what unfolds in terms of your emptiness realization depends and is determined to a large part by my, what exactly I'm desiring. And if I don't really, really, if I'm not really genuinely, authentically passionate about it, it won't deliver. I do all the practices, I kind of do the things, but it's not, it's not your thing. So what I design, the difference, discerning, learning to discern the difference between what's really a, what should we say, authentic, deep soul desire and what's a more ego desire and what's a just indoctrination and programming from cultures or uh, th- the wider culture or the subculture, including Dharma cultures. You're in a situation where everyone's the teacher and everyone else going on about emptiness, emptiness and doing these practices and people are excited and one naturally thinks, oh, that's what I've got to do. And it could be jhanas as well. But I would say... Um, you know, for these things to really deliver, there needs to be this authentic passion. And the same thing, even a person wants to be a writer or or a singer-songwriter, whatever whatever it is. So why? Where's the desire coming from? Is there something um, that needs that? Or is 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 there something that needs you to do that? You know, these are, these are hard questions. So authentic about what I desire, and authentic also, as I said earlier, about how my desire burns. And that's really different soul styles. And that, I think, really needs to be respected. So some people, yeah, just kind of, it's a, it's a whole big, intense thing, whatever, and some people much less so. Some people, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quieter flame, but it's very, very steady, and it's not so dramatic. What's authentic? to you, to your soul. And then there's, there's another question, there's another aspect, like how to be true to one's deep desires. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean, really, for me to honor my desires? I, for this, I need to know myself. If I say, I want this, I'm going to do this, 
I'll, I will do this. I plan. I've pledged myself to this, and this is the thing that I really care about. Da da da. And then, and you see, person, little little time goes by, and they're not following through on it. And there's all kinds of what often to them look like good reasons. Oh, my mother hurt her leg, or my this or that, or this or else someone asked me to do this. And there's a million reasons. But oftentimes, it's actually to do with self-knowledge. I don't know if for some reason this person is not seeing this pattern of getting very passionate about something and not following through. Not, it's not steady. It's difficult stuff. This is why I say this is actually more, more fundamental than emptiness or jhana or awakening or whatever, because all that's going to depend on what, how wise am I about my desire in re- and, and what's my relationship to desire and how well do I know myself around that. It's interesting, you know, one of the, I think one of the gifts of modernity is that um, in, a, in a way we're free. There's no dominant, uh, dominant narrative, dominant kind of view anymore in modernity of what the most important thing is in life and therefore what's most desirable. So we're not obliged to believe um, that this or that is, is the best kind of desire. Um, and that if we were somehow wiser or better or clearer or less deluded, that would be what we would really desire. Modernity has done away with all that. And uh, we, you know, if, I was just, if I was just less deluded, I would simply desire awakening. Or I would simply desire this. And modern Western culture has just done away with that. It's just, it's no longer legitimate to say to anyone else, um, this or that is what makes a life really worth living. And that's what you should really desire. What that does, the gift of that, is it makes us free, free to choose. Or to a certain extent, it makes us free, or more free, than if that were uniformly agreed in the culture. Like in certain cultures, it was always agreed. It's best to become a monk. If you've really got the uh, desire and the spirit and you're really clear, you'd become a monk. And everyone knew that. And someone who wasn't becoming a monk knew that they were making a kind of second-level choice. But that whole view and narrative and framework has gone. There's nothing that we can point to anymore. Um, nothing that it's legitimate to point to in modern Western culture. So there's an absence, the gift of which is a certain kind of freedom, freedom to choose to a certain degree. Because then we have to deal with all kinds of other stuff that gets in the way of freedom or looks like freedom actually isn't. But this very gift is at the same time, I think, a huge, a huge problem, a huge problem for modern culture. The loss of any kind of objective criteria or, or kind of uh, agreed upon, universally agreed upon criteria to determine what is it that it makes a life really worth living? What is it? What is the good life? What is, what is a beautiful life? What is, what is a life most worth living? And of course, relative to that is what then should I desire? All this is connected. The absence of that is the cause of huge and, and widespread and profound problems in, in modern, modern culture, modern society, postmodern society. 
And, and these are ethical issues. And at the r- I think at the root of our um, ethical, well, I, I, I would climate change, species extinction, so much of what uh, other, other racial injustice, so much of what's going on in the world are actually ethical issues at root. And part of the very ethical problem is this absence. Um, does it make sense? So I've talked about that um, quite a lot recently um, rec- on recordings, and I hope to be able to talk about it some more. I just think it's it's so pressing and so important. You see how the, all these things are connected. We can talk about emptiness, blah, 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 but until the desires there, and until that's connected to, well, what actually makes a life worth living, and how are we going to uh, relate to all this, and what is my relationship with all that? It's huge. I just want to touch on this and pinpoint just, you know, again, it's like what's actually significant and sometimes we don't realize what's significant because we're, we're certain that something else is significant. You actually have to go to another level and actually, oh, there's something else here, a whole other level that I hadn't even considered that's actually really, really significant. Okay, uh, just following on a couple, couple of small things about desire. Um, just primarily for soul makers, um, I'll, I'll be brief because this is not a soul making retreat. If you love soul making Dharma and if you love soul making practices, then you should realize, if not by now, you should realize at some point that your very sense of soul making Dharma will expand. It will expand into new territories that it hadn't included before. It will expand new possibilities, new realms of existence and being and of your being will get included. Have you? Should have. Okay, well, if you haven't already, you should. It more and more gets included in the, in worked into the soul-making dynamic. And so what soul-making dharma pertains to just, and, and is, starts to, the sense of it starts to expand. And I think at some point, most uh, practitioners, most soul-making dharma practitioners will realize two things. One is that jhana practice is a kind of art and as such is also part of and contributes to the art of soul-making practice. So some of you already kind of get that connection, others of you much less, less or it's not there yet. So jhana practice, the art of jhana practice becomes or is seen to become very relevant to soul-making dharma practice. Um, And uh, skill and skill in relationship and all of that. Uh, sorry, is, is relevant um, in terms of the, you know the sensitivity and the attunement that we talked about, the, the magic. So some of you already get a sense of the m- the magic of jhana practice and this magic of playing with perception. And it's, it's the same. You know, if you're practicing soul making dharma, you're practicing a kind of magic too. And you start to see, oh, these things are really, really connected. Uh, they're really relevant, um, and relevant to what possibilities open up. So that's one thing that should get clear. A second thing that should get clear is that being able to really sustain, or the demand in jhana practice to really sustain, to stay with over and over and for hours and hours, to marinate in, um, to return to the primary nimitta, to let that really mature that way and the practice mature that way, 
Um, that kind of sustaining needs eros. And the, 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 the very way we're relating to the primary nimitta is, in soul-making dharma, dharma language, erotic, in the small definition of erotic. And to sustain, to be able to sustain that eros in the small uh, definition is relevant to um, the art and skill and also relevant to being in relationship with anything that we love. So again, this question, how does your eros burn? What's your style? Is it, oh, get excited about this and then, and then a, a, a quick flame and then I get a quick flame of excitement about that and then a quick flame of excitement, oh, this wonder opens up and then something else. Or is it this, uh, this very steady, just stay with one thing, stay with one thing, or, or what? What's the style of eros? But a lot depends on, on that in terms of our relationship with jhana practice and, and our ability to really sustain. It is an erotic, in a small sense, it's an erotic relationship. And again, that comes back to what's authentic. What's the authentic way my eros burns? And a kind of contradictory question or complementary question, because of the nature of the soul-making dynamic, there's, there's, there's always this double question. It's like because of the nature of soul and soul-making, there's always this question, what's authentic to my soul? And there's the possibility of my soul's growing and extending and learning new ways and new ways it can burn that I hadn't even recognized were uh, available to me, part of me the kinds, the styles of, uh, of, of my fire burning, of my eros. So you get a kind of a complicated question there. Second small thing for soul makers um, is, we I said much earlier on the retreat, and this is connected to all this business about desire, I said also one of the most significant things, one of the most uh, crucial elements of a fruitful practice is the view that we have of the self on the path. And if that's problematic, then no matter what we experience uh, in meditation, no matter what we open to, it, it won't deliver its full fruit. It can be stymied, it can be blocked. The view of the self on the path. So this is important for everyone, everyone. And it's not something we usually talk about. We usually expect, no, if I just do the right practices, that will all get taken care of. Mm, maybe, but maybe not. Um, when we come, and again, this is just for pe people interested in soul making, talked about so a view of the self on the path can also be related to the fantasy of the path and the fantasy of the self on the path. And sometimes a person recognizes oh this is really th i really need something like this to help me to, to help me sustain whether it's on jhana practice or emptiness or just dharma practice or soul making practice or whatever it is i need something in the view of the self um and it might um, and if you know soul making dharma practice i need a fantasy here to actually sustain and and give give uh, keep delivering keep um encouraging me supporting me um, so there's the possibility of a kind of formulaic answer, which is I'm, you know, the bodhisattva and take the bodhisattva vows and having that kind of um, quasi-imaginal relationship with the whole uh, quasi-imaginal sense of the self on the path. I'm a bodhisattva, I'm doing this for all beings, or I'm a warrior or whatever it is. And all that's okay, kind of taking a kind of formula 
uh, if you like. But it will be much more powerful and much more soulful if it's personal, unique to you, to your particulars, authentic again. The, um, the word authentic comes from auto, and auto means uh, self. So it pertains to you. In other words, if, if the fantasy is a particular one, not just a generic Buddhist formula or, or something else like that. Um, if you are the author, that word author is n it's, uh, phonetically related to authentic, but not etymologically related. Its, it's etymological root is, is from al algeri in, in Latin, which means to increase. An author is something, someone that grows something. But phonetically, they're related. Authentic and author. If you want to be a real author, I need to be authentic. And that means getting in touch with what this self needs. Um, what's personal in particular. So how do I uh, access that? Uh, yes, possibly through generic universal Buddhist formulas or whatever. Um, or it's accessed in one of two ways, which is out of the corner of my eye, so to speak. That's what I mean by fantasy is something we kind of see out of the corner of our eye. When I'm really in love with something, when I'm inspired, there's somewhere, I'm not really noticing at first, somewhere is hiding a fantasy of what I'm doing and of the self in its journey of doing what I'm loving. When I love, when, I, when I'm in love, when I'm inspired, there's a fantasy hiding there. So how do I discover what my personal fantasy is? I kind of glimpse it out of the corner of my eye. It's not really an image, it's a kind of um, background sort of narrative image. But I can glimpse that in those, I those times and then I can use it and then I can draw upon it and then I can develop it in practice and, and it becomes really fertile uh, potentially as a support for my desire, for my sustaining on the path, whatever path I've chosen. So it can come out of those times of love, out of the corner of my eye I catch it, or it can come right in and through my dukkha. When I'm really struggling on the path, when I'm really struggling with a sense of the self on the path, when it's got so heavy, so frustrating, when the, the longing is burning painfully, um, when there's grief perhaps, when there's despair, right there, in and through my dukkha, the very uh, crucible of that dukkha, there's enough in there, if I have to go into it with a lot of skill and a lot of the right kind of holding, and but if I do, in the alchemy of it, of this crucible of dukkha, it can emerge um, a, a fantasy of self on the path that's liberating and supportive and sustaining and powerful and generative and nourishing and beautiful and endlessly fertile, as, as uh, soul-making images are. So it's exactly when I feel uh, really the, the, the pain of the problem of having a goal and my relationship with it. But that's, can if, I, if I come with all the soul-making skill that I have and art, that, that's exactly when the most fertile thing can come. Okay, last thing. Um, so that was a bit of a, not a digression. I, I f again, I feel very important, uh, this whole desire business, but I've talked about it so much elsewhere. So it's just a bit more. Back to the inf realm of infinite space. Same deal with mastery. Same same things. We're, we're aiming for the same things. In time, when it's ready, um, can go there um, 
not from any jhana, as I've described, can go there either by subtle intention, just from a normal consciousness, through an insight way of looking, through this just looking at things and just seeing through them, so to speak, seeing, sensing their non-solidity, can go from not the fourth jhana, but the second or the third, etc. want to play with all this and develop all that. And then what I think, one of the things I think gets really delightful at this point is walking in the realm of infinite space. Um, so I mean, going for a walk on the, on the lanes and uh, very interesting and, and very lovely experience, I would say. Um, and then again, with every, every new jhana, we've, we've added more permutations for our leapfrog ping pong, right? Because you can jump around all kinds of different places to this one and that one. Okay. Uh, I think that's all I wanted to say today. So let's have a bit of quiet together. Thank you, everybody. Um, time for tea. Are there any interviews tonight? There's a few interviews tonight, and then we'll put the the updated form um, later on tonight. Okay, so time for tea. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.